Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone. I watch the 351st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And joining me this morning is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. A uh, warning to our listeners, disinfect your computers and phones after the broadcast. I have a really bad cold. I'm sorry. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Uh, it's delightful to have you here. And, uh, Eric, our lead story this morning is, of course, about that mystery disease that's uh, crippling youngsters across the country. That's right, acute flaccid myelitis, AFM. It's similar to polio and leads to a sudden onset of paralysis. This condition mostly affects children younger than four. Indeed. Returning with a news update on this developing story is Dr. Jennifer Rubin. Dr. Rubin is the attending physician in the Neurology Division at Northwestern University's Feinstein School of Medicine. Also on today's broadcast, we'll hear the latest regulations from Washington. That's when Rhonda Toller joins us with her Dateline Washington report. And joining us this morning is Terry Fletcher. Terry's going to be reporting on the fine line between coding for moderate sedation and coding for monitored general sedation, and you have a talkback segment this morning as well. We have much news to report during this broadcast, and we begin this morning with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on sepsis featuring Dr. Megan Cortazzo. It's this Thursday, December 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Tim Powell. Today, uh, I wanted to talk about the Marriott data breach, and I would like to start by reading what Marriott has put up as of December 8th on the worst data breach in the history of data breaches. Uh, Marriott has not finished identifying duplicate information in the database, but it believes that it contains information on approximately 500 million guests who made a reservation at Starwood property. For approximately 327 million of these guests, the information includes some combination of name, mailing address, phone number, email address, passport number, Starwood preferred guest, account information, date of birth, gender, arrival, departure information, reservation date, and communication preferences. For some information, it also includes credit card payments and credit card numbers and expiration dates, but Marriott stresses that the payment credit card numbers were encrypted using 128-bit AES encryption. You may think to yourself, this is not the worst thing in the world. They probably can't hack my credit card. Here's what they can do, though. Hackers can now send out phishing emails to over 300 million people in order to get into their personal and corporate accounts. Wikipedia has a good definition for phishing. Phishing is a fraudulent attempt to obtain sensitive information such as usernames, passwords, credit card details by disguising as a trustworthy entity in electronic communication, typically carried out by email spoofing, where you send out an email that appears to come from one person but really doesn't, instant messaging, or often directs the user to enter personal information at a fake website, the look and feel of which are identical to a legitimate site. Hackers have common email addresses of people that at work at the same company can send emails like this. Hey, Bob, it was nice seeing you last week at the meeting. Here's some additional information you should look at. Tim, the email looks like it came from your coworker, Tim. The hackers know that you both stayed at the same hotel on the same day. 
when Bob opens the email, he infects his computer with a virus and starts spreading the virus within the company. The email looks like it really came from Tim because the return email address is Tim's email address. Tim and Bob really did stay at the same hotel on the same date, and Bob would almost certainly open a phishing email that looks like it really did come from Bob. If required, the hacker can even find the company logo and attach it to the phishing email to make it look more official. How can you protect yourself? Most company email servers are designed to identify emails as spam if the return address of the email does not agree with the domain that the email came from. Check with your IT department on what current practices are. If you open an email with an attachment, look at it carefully before and see if the logo and other information on the email are correct and conform to company rules before you open it. And with that, I hope to report more on this in the future. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Timothy Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's December the 11th, 2018, and you're listening to the 351st edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. Now's the time for Dateline Washington, featuring Tucked In Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Tuller. So, Rhonda, good morning. A lot of news coming out of Washington. What should we know today? Good morning, Chuck. I had one update, and I just saw a new update. What I was going to say to you is in the lame duck Congress, there's not a lot of focus on health care, but things can change daily. I just saw that the Republicans have introduced a new GOP tax bill to postpone the medical device tax till 2025 and the tax on health insurance until 2022 with some other delays for taxes. However, the real focus of the Congress is averting a partial government shutdown. I don't think anyone in the Congress wants to be here over the holidays negotiating uh, for a partial government shutdown. I will say that um, there are some things that are still out there. For instance, from a pharma perspective, there was what they call a technical correction, which would leave pharma responsible for paying a greater share of senior costs in Part D, the Part D donut hole. There was a hope that that would get uh, corrected. In addition, uh, the CREATES Act continues to be stalled, and that's the act that would speed cheaper generic drugs to the market. Um, in addition, Besides what's going on in the congressional space, um, recently, uh, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and CMS released uh, something that a draft report that's required by the 21st Century Cures Act um, called Reducing Regulations and Administrative Burden Relating to the Use of Health Information Technology and Electronic Health Records with three overarching goals, reducing the effort and the time to record health information in EHRs, reducing the effort and time required to meet regulatory reporting requirements, and improving functionality and ease of use of electronic health records. 
Um, comments are due through January 28, 2019. In addition, one other thing that came out last week was from Health and Human Services, the Treasury Department, and the Labor Department, a joint report last week on reforming America's health care system through choice and competition. And it specifically focuses on the role of state and federal laws and regulatory um, environment on choice and competition in health care. Um, one other thing that happened last week was MedPAC that advises um, on Medicare funding had their uh, December meeting where they had a number of reports on payments um, in Medicare uh, for health professionals for various sectors of the uh, health economy. And then the last thing I'll mention is that there's always rules waiting to drop from uh HHS and CMS right now, uh, there was a final rule sent to the Office of Management and Budget on the Medicare Shared Savings uh, Accountable Care Organizations. That went on November 30th. I saw some notices recently that are out there pending on Medicare Advantage. Um, as you know, regulations are always uh, a moving target. So I'll stop there and toss it back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rhonda. That was Talk 10 Tuesday Legislative Analyst Rhonda Toller. Rhonda is a member of the HIMSS Professional Development Committee. Our Tuesday focus is the fine line between coding for moderate sedation and coding for moderate general sedation. Here now with our Tuesday focus is nationally recognized professional physician, coding consultant, educator, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me today. So coding for moderate sedation or conscious sedation and monitored sed uh, anesthesia care, it's not a difficult concept. However, distinguishing from what the services provided are in deciphering conflicted information about which physician, what physicians can report can be confusing for some coders and physicians. Over the past year and a half, I've had to educate coders and physicians not only um, that it's worth capturing the service, uh, especially for moderate sedation when appropriate, but even if it's only $12 in range for the first 15 minutes, but also when not to bill for it because documentation may sometimes lacks the necessary elements to support the service. So MAC services are rendered by anesthesia providers who aren't involved in the diagnostic or procedural service and include the same day and include in the same day care as other anesthesia services. So pre-anesthesia assessment, documentation of vital signs, post-anesthesia uh, patient care, et cetera. And then also, if necessary, the anesthesia provider must convert to general anesthesia, which requires anesthesia training. So that's when we're talking about uh, the MAC service. But when you're talking about the moderate sedation, that's a little bit different. And they do not include the MAC codes as per CPT. And also, when you're dealing with the moderate sedation, there's some different definitions that you also have to be aware of. And it's the service provided by the same physician when you're coding the codes 99153, 9151 to 153, but the same physician performing the diagnostic or therapeutic service, along with a trained observer to assist in monitoring the patients. Many payers are also now requiring the physician to document the supervision, that word actually, in, of the sedation services in their procedural note and not just refer to the nurse's sedation note. So the moderate sedation codes are first based on age of patient and then how much time was spent with the intra-service work. And the interest service work time needs to be documented because it begins with the administrative sedation agent, ends when the procedure is completed and the patient stable, uh, is stable for the recovery status, but also includes monitoring during the service, face-to-face -face encounter with the physician, 
and then periodic reassessment of the patient. The only way to really further that and add that language into the provider's documentation is to use, really use the word supervision. And I'll see physicians that will leave that out, and then the payers will question the service, and they'll say, well, I'm not paying for that. And then although a coder may expect that anesthesia codes are only reported by trained anesthesia providers, many insurance carriers right now indicate that non-anesthesia providers are also reimbursed when billing the appropriate codes. You just, again, have to make sure that your documentation within your provider's report can stand up to muster because it's what it, you've always heard, code what you do, you know, um, if it's not coded or if it's not documents, not done, but you have to make sure you can code what you can support. And so when you're looking at moderate sedation, that is the drug-induced depression of consciousness during which patients respond purposefully to verbal commands, either alone or accompanied by light tactical stimulation, and then no interventions are required to maintain a patent, patent airway and spontaneous ventilation is adequate. Uh, cardiovascular function is usually maintained, and you still have a trained observer there should there be any issues, but typically there's not going to be an issue. Also, reflex withdrawal from a painful stimulus is not considered a purposeful, purposeful response. So, you know, a couple of the different mod um, medicines you might be looking at, Benadryl, Versed, Demerol, some just to name a few. Now, monitored anesthesia care, the MAC I referred to, uh, you're looking at medicines like propofol, for example, and that gets into the anesthesia code section, 00100 to 01999. That's specific anesthesia service for a diagnostic or therapeutic procedure. And indications for monitored anesthesia care include the nature of the procedure and the patient's clinical condition and the potential need, again, to you know, really maybe convert to general or regional. A moderate conscious sedation, just like MAC, is paid uh, separately. But just re remember that the first 15 minutes is the only thing you're going to get reimbursed if you are in the facility setting. Anything after that first 15 minutes, you would have to have a place of service office to get that reimbursed because there's no work value uh, involved in that. So the RVU uh, section of the physician's fee schedule basically says that after the first 15 minutes, it's really handled by staff. So they're not really reimbursing for that. The 199153 is a technical service only. So to be compliant with payer documentation, I would offer the following example to support for moderate conscious sedation. Something that says, and I quote, I attest that moderate conscious sedation was provided under my direct supervision with the sedation trained nurse using blank milligrams of Versed, blank milligrams of Benadryl to, to sedate the patient. Start and stop time was, and there are no complications, and then see nurse's sedation sheet I signed and dated for further details. If you can say something like that, then remember you are billing for your services, and this is a time-based code, so as long as you've documented, you can support it and you can report it and bill it and feel comfortable should it ever be questioned. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician coding consultant, educator, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Terry, and you can read Terry's reporting on this very important topic in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Have you tried a HEMIS code check service? Get answers to all your tough ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, or HICS-PICS questions straight from the trusted leader in health information, AHEMA. Approved staff members have 24-7 access to the newly designed portal, where they can organize a library of solutions, receive status updates for outstanding questions, and gain insight into knowledge gaps. AHEMA's CodeCheck service is built on the experience of over 90 years of coding excellence, 
and is staffed by credentialed, experienced coders. Trust your questions to AHIMA, a recognized leader in HIM knowledge. Visit ahima.org slash codecheck to discover how your organization can benefit from AHIMA's expert coding support. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast this morning, our lead story is about that mystery disease, AFM. There are reported 116 confirmed cases of AFM across 36 states, with most of the cases reported in Colorado and Texas. And as of yesterday, there were 311 illness reports still being evaluated, that according to the CDC. AFM is similar to polio, and it leads to a sudden onset of paralysis. This condition, unfortunately, mostly affects children younger than four. Returning with a news update on this very important and developing story is Dr. Jennifer Rubin. Dr. Rubin is the attending physician in the neurology division of Northwestern University's Feinstein School of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Rubin. Welcome back. What's the latest on AFM? Good morning, Chuck. As you may recall, acute flaccid myelitis is defined as the acute onset of flaccid limb paralysis in the setting of spinal cord lesion, primarily affecting the central gray matter. Um, As you said, according to the CDC's latest numbers, thus far in 2018, there are 158 confirmed cases of AFM in 36 states. These 158 confirmed cases are among the total of 311 reports that the CDC has received of patients under investigation, or PUIs. The CDC and state and local health departments are still investigating some of these PUIs. To review, children with AFM typically present with rapid onset weakness, possibly cranial nerve involvement, and the limb weakness is usually asymmetric and associated with decreased tone and diminished reflexes with normal sensation. Severe cases of AFM can be associated with respiratory failure requiring ventilatory support. According to the CDC, since 2014, more than 90% of patients with AFM have had a mild preceding respiratory illness or fever consistent with a viral infection. Neuroimaging demonstrates a longitudinal anterior horn-predominant T2 hyperintensities of the gray matter, sometimes with associated brainstem abnormalities and nerve root enhancement. Cerebrospinal fluid analysis typically shows a lymphocytic pleocytosis. Imaging and CSF findings may lag behind the clinical presentation, so repeat testing may be considered if you have a high clinical suspicion and your initial studies were unremarkable. According to a recent article published a few weeks ago in JAMA Pediatrics entitled Acute Flaccid Myelitis, Keys to Diagnosis, Questions and Treatments, and Future Directions, the most commonly associated infections among recent U.S. cases are non-polio enteroviruses, particularly enterovirus D68 and enterovirus A71. Enterovirus D68 primarily causes respiratory disease and has been circulating in the U.S. in a biennial summer-fall pattern consistent with the outbreaks we've seen in 2014, 16, and 18. The enterovirus A71 has been associated with outbreaks of hand, foot, and mouth disease and neurologic disease and has been detected in stool or pharyngeal specimens, but not CSF in cases of AFM. Other viruses, such as West Nile virus, are potential pathogens, but not regularly isolated in pediatric cases. Stool and rectal specimens should be sent to the CDC to exclude poliovirus, although we want to make it clear this pathogen has not been identified in any recent recently diagnosed U.S. patients. Children with suspected AFM should be admitted to the hospital for close observation. 
Immediate treatment is primarily supportive with no prospective clinical trials. Some patients have been treated with current treatments available for transverse myelitis, including steroids and IVIG. Fluoxetine has antiantroviral properties in vitro, but retrospective study of dosing at several centers in 2016 unfortunately did not demonstrate efficacy. The CDC does not have any specific treatment recommendation. A high index of suspicion is necessary to identify and diagnose cases of acute flaccid myelitis. The CDC is still collecting information on any patients that may fit the criteria. Prompt sample collection, including CSF, blood, nasopharyngeal, and stool and rectal specimens will help maximize identification of an associated causative agent and potential vaccine development. Additional information can be found on their website, cdc.gov. Now back over to you, Erica. Thanks, Jen. That was Dr. Jennifer P. Rubin. Dr. Rubin is the attending physician in the neurology division of Northwestern's University Feinberg School of Medicine. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Dr. Rubin, for being at our program this morning and for that very important update. Now's the time for our popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, Erica, what's on your mind today? A friend of mine is having a difference of opinion between the coders and the CDI staff at our hospital in the context of mortality review. To optimize the expected mortality of a patient, all risk-adjusting diagnoses need to be captured and to be present on admission. The issue has to do with a recent addition to the mortality modeling methodology. Certain conditions have been noted to be risk-adjusting for the mortality model but the coders are not convinced that they are valid for coding purposes. Let's take weakness as the example. I may come to the emergency department complaining of having the weak and disease, or my physical examination may reflect true muscular weakness. A symptom is subjective, and a sign is measurable and observable. R53.1, weakness, is for the symptom, an M6281 would be the code used for the sign of generalized muscular weakness. But the question is, is weakness inherent to or integral to other diagnoses, like renal failure or sepsis, or is it an independent condition suitable for its own code? The ICD-10-CM official guidelines state that signs and symptoms that are associated routinely with a disease process should not be assigned as additional codes unless otherwise instructed by the classification. Sometimes, like in BPH, we are directed to use additional codes to specify which associated symptoms this particular patient has. Other times, there is no guidance, and we are just supposed to intuitively know that cough is inherent to pneumonia and shouldn't be separately coded. Signs and symptoms which are not associated routinely with the disease process are supposed to be coded when present, like you could code cough with exacerbation of ulcerative colitis. Maybe it elicited a chest X-ray and the patient was given an antitussive. The ICD-10-CM coding handbook by the AHA states that unless otherwise instructed by the classification or designated with a combination code making it unnecessary, Codes from Chapter 18 are assigned as secondary codes only when the symptom or sign is not integral to the underlying condition and when the presence of the sign or symptom makes a difference in the severity of the patient's condition and or the care given. 
integral or inherent to implies that they are almost universally associated and can be pinpointed to that particular underlying condition. If common general symptoms like weakness, fatigue, nausea, and headache may be associated with just about any other condition, it may be challenging to determine if they are inherent to a given condition in this patient in this case. The questions I think you need to ask are, is it really integral to, like fever and pneumonia or headache and meningitis? Like, is it generally accepted and even a lay person would recognize the relationship? Does this symptom meet secondary diagnosis criteria? Did it get treated specifically? Did it make the patient sicker? Or did the provider do a more extensive workup than if the patient didn't have that sign or symptom? Did the clinician think it was clinically relevant? Did they make it a separate line item in their assessment and plan list? And did it persist throughout the record? Or did they link it as being due to or from the potentially underlying condition? Was the symptom recorded in the ED, but the admitting physician following providers no longer mentioned it individually? My philosophy is that the coding abstraction should tell the story of the patient's encounter. Every sign and symptom that the patient presents with may not be necessary to tell the story. Risk-adjusting conditions for mortality do so because they have been identified as increasing the risk of dying. In this specific case of weakness, in this case, I think they are trying to parse out the physically weak patients, not the ones subjectively feeling weak and dizzy. If a patient dies and a pertinent symptom in the risk model is on the record POAY, code it if it met secondary diagnosis criteria, don't code it if it didn't, and query if you aren't sure. Read my article today for a more in-depth review. Stay well out there and happy holidays. See you next year. Thanks, Erica, very much. By the way, you can read her excellent article on that in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor e-news. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Tucked In Tuesday. Uh, we've got a couple of questions. Uh, Dr. Rubin, a question for you. Amber wants to know uh, if the CDC is creating a new ICD-10 code for AFM. Actually, thanks to the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast the last time I was on, that was actually brought up as a consideration creating this ICD-10 code. So I brought it to the Illinois Department of Health, who's in direct communication to the CDC. So definitely the thought has been planted, not just from, from you guys, but from others across the country. And right now that does not exist, but it's being considered. Thanks. We'll monitor that situation. Thanks again, Dr. Rubin. We have a question from Ron, and this question is directed to you, Erica. Okay. Question for Dr. Reimer. Why would the organization even use something no specific as weakness in their mortality risk calculations? Isn't muscle weakness also a sign of malnutrition to both get coded? So I, I think what happens is if the weakness is, is integral to or inherent to an underlying condition, it would not really be captured and coded. The question is, if a patient comes in complaining of weakness, and let's pretend that they never figure out what it's from, or it doesn't seem to be specifically related to all of the underlying conditions that get coded, then it would be an independent variable. The question is whether it's worthy of querying. And obviously, we don't query for every condition because a coder could spend an entire day coding one single chart if they really wanted to code every single little itty-bitty thing. But a lot of it's not clinically relevant. And if it doesn't meet secondary 
diagnosis criteria, it's not worthy. So the question is, in this case, why is it worthy? Well, it's worthy only because if that patient died, if it's part of the mortality risk model, it risk adjusts and makes it having been more likely that that patient would have died. So it doesn't look like they're observed is excessive. And that's the question. The question is, do we do it for every single patient who has weakness? Do we only do it for patients who die? I think we need to make sure that we are particular about who we do it with and that there needs to be good enough documentation that the doctor thought it was clinically relevant. I do not think it should be noted in the ED once and then never mentioned again. And then just because the patient dies, we should go and query for it so we can capture it. I think if it's not a really a secondary diagnosis, we shouldn't be going for it. So I hope that answered it. And in terms of the malnutrition, yes, muscle weakness can be a sign of malnutrition. The question is whether the physician specifically and independently documented it as another condition in addition to the protein calorie malnutrition. If they did, like let's pretend they, were, they said this patient needs physical therapy for their muscular weakness, then it would be considered an independent condition. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for our 351st edition of Talk to Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Pleasure, Tim Powell, Ron Tell, and, of course, our special guest, Dr. Jennifer Rubin. By the way, a number of questions came in. We didn't have time to answer them, in particular questions from Laura. Laura will make every effort to answer those questions that you have. Uh, offline later in the broadcast. And a program note, this is the last Talk 10 Tuesday for 2018. We're going to be back Tuesday, January the 15th, 2019. In the meantime, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts on demand anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And don't forget to be with us this coming Thursday for the ICD-10 University Board Webcast on sepsis. That features Dr. Megan Curtazzo. It's coming your way this Thursday, December 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. So until we return on Tuesday, January the 15th, 2019, have a safe and compliant holiday. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talked In Tuesday and Isaac 10 Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Talked In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.